11 through 20. And the sermon title this morning is Recon, Plan, and Build. I would say Reconnaissance, Plan, and Build, but Recon sounded a little better for the sermon title. So Recon, Plan, Build. Let's go ahead and pray, ask for God's help. And when we pray, He hears us and He helps us. Let's pray. Father, we just need wisdom and direction. I thank you for everybody that's here this morning. Pray for the, the kids that are in the room uh, of all ages. I pray that you would help them to hear what you have to say. I thank you that you speak to children. For all the parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, people, singles, lead us in the way you would have us go. Help us to respond. Help us to obey. Help us to worship you for your grace. We thank you for the provision that you provided, that you, you came through for Nehemiah. And you come through for us. We thank you for that. Lead us in all things. I trust that you will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. I love it. There is work to be done. There's always work to be done. The work doesn't go away. I feel like every time the trash can is full, I take the trash out, I walk back in, and voila, it's full again. In the spring, you mow your yard, and three days later, you're like, didn't I just mow this yard? And now I've got to mow it again. And uh, by the end of the summer, you're thinking, gosh, God, thank you that there's seasons and I won't have to mow my yard again. And then by about mid-January, early February, I think most of the guys in the room are probably in agreement. You're like, I cannot wait to mow my yard. <laughs> Can't wait to get out there. And then about June, you're like, oh, all right, I'm tired. It's 99 million degrees outside. I've drank my Powerade, my body armor, and I just want to be done with this. There's always season, but there's always work to be done. It's just it never goes away. We're going to work the rest of our lives. In fact, God has prepared good works for us to walk in even before we were born. We are to be devoted to good works. Titus chapter 3, verse 9, I believe says, or 10, that the people of God are to be devoted to good works. So there's always work to be done. And the building of the kingdom, the mission that God has given us, even in the Great Commission, requires work. The building of the kingdom of God, discipling the nations is not polishing brass on a sinking ship. Let's talk eschatology real quick. The theology, the understanding of the end times. What is to come? There is different perspectives on the end times. And in the last year and a half to two years, there has been a ramping up of the discussion about what's happening around the world, around prophecy, around the future. When's Christ going to come back? How is Christ going to come back? And I will say before I say anything else, there is a big, broad room for, uh, we have to agree with some really big things, like Jesus is coming back. That's pretty important. We also have to, degree, to agree that the trajectory of all human history is moving towards victory. Okay, No matter what end times theology you espouse, you have to go to the very end and say, we are victorious along with Christ. So we all have to agree on some big big pieces here. But then there's some really big areas that we can disagree on and we can have fun with and and uh, we can be convinced of, but I want to challenge you in one particular area. There is a theology that has grown in popularity, and you have to be careful that it doesn't become a pessimistic theology. So there's, okay, in the broad strokes, you have a, 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 a lot of eschatology that tends towards a pessimistic view of the future. Okay, we're polishing brass on a sinking ship. Okay, or why polish brass? On a, on a sinking ship. The Titanic is going down. Band, why are you playing music? Like, we're going down here. We don't start scrubbing the floors when the Titanic's going down. And this idea is, is that as we go further and further throughout history, 
even though there's been great advances, even though now across the world from where Christianity began, even though there's more Christians right now than there's ever been throughout the history of the world with over almost 2 billion people in this world claiming to be Christians, there's people who say that in the future it's going to get worse, 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 everything's burning down, and certainly as you look and turn on the news and read the newspaper, you can say, boy, things uh, seem really, really terrible. It's crazy right now. So a pessimistic view of the future. And then there's different forms of, okay, short-term pessimism, long-term optimism. Other forms of eschatology have a really long view of history, and they're optimistic about the future. This is where I would fall. This is the category I would fall into. I have an optimistic view of the future, believing that the kingdom of God is going to extend throughout this whole globe until the knowledge of the glory of God is, it covers, like the seas, it covers the whole earth. And so the kingdom of God is going to continue to spread and continue to spread. And these are the differences that we can have. And we can look at the scriptures and compare and think, well, how can you see this this way and that way or all of that? But here's what I, warn, I want to warn against. Your future, your view of the future matters. What you think is coming down the pipeline matters. And if you have an extremely pessimistic view of the future, you have to guard yourself that that does not get in the way of how you're living your life today. Because you have good works that God has prepared in advance for you to walk in. And so if your view of the future is pessimistic, things are going to get worse and worse, everything's going to burn to the ground, don't let that stop you from obeying God and expecting through that obedience that God is going to work. Do not let pessimistic views of the future lead to a pessimistic view of your life, your home, and the mission that God has set you on. You have to be careful with that. Because Christians throughout the history of the world have built and they have expected God to work through the sweat of their brow and the work of their hands. And so they've built things. You look in this country and you see things like hospitals. You think, see, see things like schools. Institutions like Princeton, Harvard, Yale, all started by Christians to train men in the ministry. You look at almost every single institution, even state institutions throughout this country, and it was started to advance Christianity. Right over here at SIU. The Crest at SIU. Deo Valente. The will of the Lord. There was a desire to seek after the will of God. And so you go and you look at uh, the campus, right at the heart of the campus, you see the old Baptist mission that was there. SIU sent out... From what I've heard, I've not been able to verify this, but I've just heard down from Phil Nelson, from other people, that when they started, they were sending out more Baptist pastors than any other university or seminary in the country. So if you look at institutions, churches used to build, and I don't know how the financial dynamics worked with material cost and how much people made. I don't, it's just kind of confusing as you look back in church history and see how they could afford such beautiful buildings. People used to build church buildings that weren't pole barns, believe it or not. They used to build church buildings with big stone that would last generation upon generation upon generation. I went to Ireland when I was in college, 2007, and I was shocked because you're walking around Ireland and they're like, yeah, that church building was built in the 1400s. Like, in the 1400s, and it's still being used. Archways, arch like beautiful, ornate buildings built in the 1400s because they had an optimistic view of the future. 
They expected the kingdom of God to spread. They expected their grandchildren and their great-great-grandchildren to be in that same community, doing the same trade that they were doing with their hands and worshiping in the same church building that they're putting money towards. The Puritans. It was called the Puritan hope. They had this expectation that the kingdom of God was going to be visibly manifested in this new land. There's a great book by, by Ian Murray called The Puritan Hope, and it explored their eschatology and their hope for the future. They had an optimistic eschatology. It's all that to say, no matter what your eschatology is, I want to give you some optimism today, and I want to encourage you with the work of your hands to do the work that God has called us to do and expect that God is going to advance His purposes. Christians build, make discoveries, discover new lands, see problems, and don't just complain about it. We solve problems. We get to work. We figure it out. We build for the future, knowing that the arc of the future is victory. And we see this in Nehemiah's day. Because Nehemiah could have, could have wallowed in his pessimism. He could have wallowed in despair. But he did something different. And we're going to see what God did through Nehemiah today. First, these three big things we're looking at is he goes on a reconnaissance mission. Recon, plan, build. Look at verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose at night, I and a few men with me, men with me. I did not tell anyone what God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well. And on the refuse gate, or the dung gate, you guys can figure out what that is, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool. But there was no place for my mount or animal to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall, and then I entered the valley gate again and returned. Reconnaissance. Nehemiah was not rash in his desire to rebuild the walls of the city. God had put something in the heart of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah knew that he had to be intentional with this plan. He had the resources, he had the king's backing, even though Sanballat would disagree. He had all the timber that he wanted, but he knew if I was going to do this correctly, I have to have more information. I got to get to the city. So he goes out at night. Before he made a plan, he had to assess the situation. He went incognito to Jerusalem for three days. And he began to inspect the gates and the walls that were broken down. Now, there were ten ancient gates in ancient Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. And Nehemiah did not inspect all of them. Somehow or another, he had intelligence already about which gates and which portions of the wall were broken down. So he spent his time walking around the southern and southeastern parts of the gates, or of the city. And he would go to the valley gate, the dragon's well, by the dragon's well. He would inspect the refuse gate, the dung gate. He would check the walls as he went. So as he was making his mental notes, I mean, he didn't have his moleskin. I don't know what he was writing on, but he was somehow or another making notes, knowing what had to be done. He's calculating in his mind how many men need to be on this wall, how many men need to be at this gate, 
How are we going to fix this? This is torn down. This is broken. He's assessing the situation. He goes on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. He's inspecting. And so before he made the plan, he had to know what needed to be done. There's all sorts of implications that we could pull from this. Wisdom that could be gleaned from it. Um, we don't need to make rash decisions. We need to be patient and prayerful. We need to inspect. We need to not inspect to the point where we're not walking in obedience. But we need to be wise and count the cost of whatever it is that we're doing. But we have to, like we did last week and the week before, do a little bit of interpretation. Because I think there are some implications here. Remember, when Nehemiah is inspecting the city... The temple, remember, was rebuilt by Ezra. So the temple, even though it was not in the, in the same former glory as, as the old temple, the temple was rebuilt. Some things had already been put in place there. But if we remember, the city of God was Jerusalem and the place where the presence of God dwelt. And so we're making some connections here. We're being really intentional. Okay, kids, listen to me again. When we're talking about the city of Jerusalem, okay, all the kids in the room, look at me. We're talking about the city of Jerusalem. Say it with me. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Okay, the city of Jerusalem. We're talking about Jerusalem. And as, as Nehemiah is looking at Jerusalem, he had concern. We saw that two weeks ago. So today, right now, if we're connecting the dots with this book and the present reality that we're walking in, the place where the people of God gather, the place that the Spirit of God dwells, the temple of God is the very people of God, the body of Christ. And we follow Christ as living sacrifices. We're being built brick by brick, person by person. So two weeks ago, we talked about some of the issues or the problems that are facing and that are being revealed in the Big C Church. So like the church, global church, and specifically our domestic church, like the Big C Church. And we're seeing pastors and churches being duped by all sorts of different ideologies. We're seeing pastors and church walking down a very unhealthy and ungodly and in fact, in many, many ways, a satanic political route. We see people being duped, okay, the big C church. And so often, it's, uh, we fall into this trap of, of being able to identify other people's issues or sins without first recognizing, wait, what, let, let's start with the house of God. Judgment starts in the house of God. So as we look at the big C, C church, in one way, we are talking about the house of God. But we can bring, out, we can bring and walk in, in, in more, uh, uh, more centered to bullseye if we, begin to, if, if we begin to evaluate, not just out there, but in here, our church, Christ Church Carbondale, what are some things that need to be rebuilt? What are some areas of unhealth? And then go tighter in the concentric circles and say, wait a minute, what do I need? The presence of God dwells within the people of God here, Christ Church Carbondale, but also the presence of God dwells within me. What needs to be, what kind of reconnaissance do I need to do in my life? What kind of plan needs to be made about my life? What kind of building needs to happen through my hands? And so there are real problems in the church. But it's always easier to see the sins of other people than the sin that hides in our own heart. I don't know why I am so good at seeing other people's sins. And then we have these areas called blind spots because we don't see them. And our wife or our husband or our friends, uh, they end up calling us out about it, and we're like, oh, I didn't even see that. I didn't recognize that. 
But I sure can see your sins, honey. That's why it's always easier to think about all the people in your, not, in your life that need to hear this sermon. I wish they were here. Or I hope they're listening up. Listen. Like, listen. But then to pause and think, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I need to listen. Like, to always think everybody else needs to listen, but I don't need to listen is very prideful. It's very prideful. Every week when we come here, every week when I am preparing, um, I'm wanting God to show me areas that I need to grow. I don't want to be the same. I've not arrived. And like newsflash, you've not arrived. You know, to a place of sinlessness, to a place of perfect wisdom, perfect insight. Oh, no. It's not just them. It's this guy right here. So let's think about right here for a minute. Let's think about our church and let's think about our lives individually. Starting next week, we're going to do a play kind of on the rebuilding of the walls here. And this was Lido's idea. We were praying about this. I think I shared this with you about doing a sermon series because if you remember when we started the book of Philippians, I told you, hey guys, I was wrong on, a, on, a, on an issue. I was wrong on this deacon issue. Uh, we, were, we were talking about deacons and I was looking at the book of Acts and I thought, man, there wasn't deacons until there were 5,000 people in the church of Jerusalem. So, I mean, you, you can't have a healthy church without elders, but you don't have to have deacons. That was my mentality. And then we're reading through the book of Philippians and I hope this happens to you. And we started the very first Sunday and the letter was addressed to the, el the overseers and deacons. So this smaller church, Philippi, had overseers, which are elders or pastors. That's the same interchangeable word. And they had deacons. So I got to thinking, wait a minute. I think 1 Timothy 3 is normative for smaller churches, not just bigger churches. I think deacons are, you know what, I think I was just wrong on that. And so I told you guys, you know, I was wrong on that. And so we're going to take a two-week or three-week series we're going to play on rebuilding the walls here, so we're getting really creative, right? So uh, we're going to inspect the walls, rebuild, and we're going to be stronger on the other side of this. So starting this week, three-week series on church governance. We're stepping outside of Nehemiah, and we're going to talk about elders, deacons, and member or congregational responsibilities. Okay, so we're going to look over that with the goal of, in the end, because I, like I said, I've been wrong about deacons. We had been wrong about deacons. Um, with the goal of nominating deacons. And you'll see why you're responsible for nominating deacons through Acts chapter 6. And we want to get deacons established. So as we do reconnaissance work, we see in, in our life, in this church, we see, okay, there's some areas that we need to grow. There's also areas that we need to grow when it comes to communication and administration. God has continued to put pieces of the puzzle together. But there are areas as a church that we can get better. And there's always going to be areas. <coughs> this is the most healthy church I've ever, ever, been, or ever been a member of. Ever. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. Um, it's the most healthy church I've ever been a member of. But, guys, we, there's room to grow. I mean, there's always room to grow. We can, we can be better, you know, like as a church. We can be more healthy. And uh, we want to spend time thinking about and praying about, God, where have we been slow to obey as a church, as a leadership, as a pastor, as pastors? And um, slow obedience is disobedience. We want to be quick to obey. We don't want to just drag our feet. Uh, we want to obey. So we're going to do a three-week series. We're going to nominate and establish deacons because that's what God tells us to do. Sound good? And you're going to have responsibilities in that, obligations. 
in that. Okay, we'll explain that more in the coming weeks. So next week, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and 1 Peter chapter 5, looking at elders. We'll be in the book of Acts as well. We'll be in a few different places. Looking at elders in the life of the church, pluralities of elders. So that's the church, our church. But what about right like here? Me, you. Okay, what's broken down in your life? What's in shambles? Okay, go, go with me here. Because I, I, I think, again, the connection is the place in which the Spirit of God dwells. That, that's why Nehemiah was in grief. The temple of God was there. It was the city of God. And we are the city of God. We're the people of God. And God's presence dwells in you. So, so what's broken down? Um, I'm not talking about your dreams, by the way. Like, when I was 14, I really dreamed about, you know, my dreams are broken down. Like, come on, that's silly. It's, that's silly. I'm not talking about Care Bear Christianity. You know, I just, oh, I just, daisies, roses, what is it? Daisies, roses, unicorns, people talk, like, not talking about that. But what is broken down that needs to be built back up? What needs to change in your life personally? Are you, like I said last week, overly complaining? Are you an avoider? What, what are things in your life that you avoid? And that will begin to, you'll, you'll begin to see, okay, that's, there's some areas of disobedience because God has not called me to avoidance. He's called to action. I don't run. Christians don't run. We walk into whatever issues there are. We bring peace. We walk in obedience. We change. We build. What are you avoiding? Are you being slow to obey God? Okay, well, well why are you being slow? Just obey. Like whatever God tells you to do. Okay, cool. God, I'm going to pray about that. I'm going I'm to walk in that. I'm going to get people to help me in that. Are you pouting? Pouting and complaining go together all the time. You know, like... Um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a little secret here. If Jordan and I are fighting, I get in like this pouty mode where I'm like, and it's pit, it's, I need to be smacked around a little bit, not by my wife. Uh, th there's that physical violence thing again that's like three weeks in a row. Maybe I'll just make that a thing. Um, but, okay, pouting, are you pouting? That's childish. And kids, by the way, don't pout. Amen from parents? Okay, pouting's not good. Uh, they learn pouting from us, by the way. Like, that's where they learn it. So if you pout, they'll pout. That was a side note. Okay, assess the situation. Like, do the work, inspect the walls. And then we make a plan. Like, okay. Uh, if you don't know the areas of your life that you need work on, I promise you, if you're married, your spouse does. Your friends do? Um, so we have to learn to listen. I'm speaking to myself. I have to learn to listen and hear. Doesn't mean that everybody else is right. But I want to listen and I want to grow. I want to respond and obey. I want to obey the Lord. And nobody in here. There's nobody in here. Listen, don't nudge anybody else. <clears throat> there's things in your life that need to change. Everyone in here. Everyone in here. And if you don't think there is, that's what needs to change about you. So we have to plan. We've got to make a plan. That's what Nehemiah does. Look at verse 16 and 17. 
The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. Nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in? That Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned with fire? Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. <coughs> the plan. Now, one thing that's, just, that's interesting to me is the shrewdness or the cunningness of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah did not wait for permission from the people of power. He didn't wait to see what Sanballat and the boys thought about it. Nehemiah knew he was coming with the authority of the king, and more importantly, he knew he was coming with the authority of God. So if he had to get up at night to do this mission, to do it in secret, he would do it. He did what he needed to do. Now, Jesus commends this kind of tactic. There is an ungodly cunning or shrewdness that's very, very wrong and manipulative. But there is a holy, godly way to be cunning and shrewd that Jesus actually commends. How about that? A holy cunning, a holy shrewdness. Matthew chapter 10 verse 16 says this. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be as wary as sh or be as shrewd as serpents or as cunning as serpents and as innocent as doves. Be like the serpent, cunning. That's a command. There's a holy way to be cunning, and this is what Nehemiah is doing. He is being shrewd or cunning. Nehemiah had a mission, and nothing was going to get in the way of that mission. Nothing. I'm going to do what God's called me to do, and nothing or no one's going to get in the way of it. If I have to go out at night, okay, who cares? I'm going out at night. Let's go, boys. We're going to the walls. We're going to inspect the walls because my job is to rebuild this city. That's what God's called me to do, and I am going to do it. So he comes back with some news. He reports the news. Guys, let me tell you, the word about Jerusalem is right. It's bad. It's real bad. The walls are broken down, and I don't know if you know this or not, but building a big brick stone wall is a lot harder than building a barbed wire fence. It's a lot harder than putting up uh, the fence that's out there. Although, Dan, thank you for putting that fence up out there. Um, what's that called again? The metal A chain link fence. It's a lot more difficult than a chain link fence. It's the kind of task when you've got a group of people that's going to require blood, sweat, tears, and death. It requires a sore back, bloodied hands. We're going to see later on that they're going to have to have a sword in one hand. Great catch, Roger. Well done. Um, a sword in one hand. Hey, kids, what are they going to have to have in one hand? All the kids, look at me. They're going to have to have a sword in one hand. What are they going to have to have? A sword in one hand. Okay, say it again, guys. Kids, what are they going to have in one hand? A sword in one hand, and then here's a tough word, a new word for you today, a trowel. Can you say a trowel? Trowel. Trowel. In the other hand, a sword in one hand, a trowel in the other. It's going to require a difficult road, and it's bad. Jerusalem, even with the rebuilding that had already started, was in a bad state. It says it right in verse 12. Or excuse me, not in verse 12. Uh, verse 16, or 18. Um, no, sorry, verse 17. Then I said to them, 
You see the bad situation we are in. Jerusalem is desolate and its gate, gates burned by fire. Okay, here's what Nehemiah could have done. Guys, it's real bad. Have you ever seen a task you wanted to do and then you got into it and realized, like, whoa, what have I got into? Like, maybe I should have hired somebody to do this. Or, like, maybe there's some teenagers from church I can get over here to, you know, do this work. Oh, my gosh, this task was monumental. But he didn't let that stop him. He had a vision. He knew what God had called him to do. He said, guys, let's go rebuild these walls. Like, Nehemiah was the kind of man with gravitas, where it's like, you're all there, you're hearing the news, and you're like, gosh, Nehemiah, I just don't know about this. And Nehemiah's like, no, guys, let's go. This is our task. We're going to do this. Get behind me. Let's go. We're going to Jerusalem. We're going to rebuild those walls. We're going to build those gates. And all the guys, it's like, courage is rising. Like, okay, like, if Nehemiah thinks we can do this, we can do this. Let's go. So they do. They have the plan. It's in place. And then the work begins. Look at verse 18. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. They put their hands to the good work. They started to build. They assessed the situation. They developed a plan. And then they began the work. Um, when it comes to hard work, there, there really can be a couple different attitudes. Um, you can either abandon the work, not do it because of its difficulty, or you can wallow and complain because of the size of the task. And that's just, just a, real, it's a real thing. Where I'm going to do it, but I'm going to complain about doing it the whole time. Okay, some of you are like that. The trash, and you just let the whole family know, we're the trashiest family in the world. Where, where's all this trash come from? How do we get this trash? Wasn't it like yesterday? My gosh, where's this trash come from? It's amazing. We're going to get videotaped. There's like people sneaking into our house, bringing trash from their house, and putting it in the trash. You can wallow in it, or you can whistle while you work. You can recognize that it's good work. It's good work to be done. I'm not going to complain about the good work God has given me. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it with joy. Um, you can have the attitude, it's bad news, it's just going to get worse. Yeah, the walls are down, we're going to go rebuild, and you know what? Sin ballot is just going to come, and he's going to tear it all down. So what's the point? You can look at it and say, where do we even begin? We've all had tasks like that that are in front of us. We're like, man, my life is such a mess right now, I don't even know where to begin. I don't even know where I am in sanctification. I don't even know how to overcome this thing, much less this thing. And so it's like, I, I just don't even know where to start. And so often it just starts with like, okay, pick up this stone, right? Just pick this up. Okay, now, now put it right over there. And then, then go back and pick up this stone and go put it over there. And, and in our life, when it comes to repentance, so often it's just like, just pick up a stone. Like, don't see everything that's in front of you. Like, okay, it's so monumental. The rest of this day... Like you don't have to be totally sanctified the rest of your life. Like the rest of this day, what does obedience to the Lord look like? We started with God's grace today. We sang about God's grace today. We're thankful for it. Let God's grace to you empower you to just, okay, the rest of the day, I want to obey the Lord and love my family and do what I'm called to do today. 
I'm going to pick up one stone. I'm just going to do one thing that God's asked me. The one thing that's in front of me that he's asked me to do, I'm going to do that. Nehemiah motivates the people of God with the favor of God. Imagine that. The motive for the work, the favor of God. You see this throughout all of the Bible. The motive for our work is never, hey, get to work and you can save yourself. Get to work and under your own power you can do amazing things. The motive of anything we do isn't, I have the power to change myself or I'm going to get God's attention. Notice how Nehemiah motivated his crew. God had been favorable to me. And I told them about the hand of my God and also about the king's word. And after he told them that, then they said, okay, let's arise, let's build, and let's put our hands to the good work. And and guys, we hear about God's favor. When we hear about his grace to us, that is the proper response. Okay, let's go. My head's up. My eyes are forward, my shoulders are squared. God, what do you have for me? And so we build. God is in this, God is with us. So the people of God said, let's get to work. And the people of God have always been, it's not just in Nehemiah, it's not just today. The people of God have always been willing to do hard work for the glory of God. Because we work not as unto men, but we work as unto God. In any act of obedience, in any act of service, in anything that we do with our career or calling or our life, anything in our home, we're doing it as unto the Lord. There's a purpose behind it. God, we want to honor you with this. Whatever we eat. Whatever we drink, whatever we do, we're going to do to the glory of God. That's what God's people have always strove, strived to do. Strove or strive, whatever, whichever one you like. And so when work needs to be done, hear me, we've got to be willing to do it. We've got to be willing to do it. If we see we're wrong, okay, we need deacons. We have to be willing to set aside, well, we've never had deacons. We've never done it this way, but our Constitution says, but this says, but that's, uh, who cares? What does the Bible say? Like, my goodness, we're not slaves to tradition, for goodness sake. Like, aren't you thankful for that? I'm thankful for good, holy, and right tradition. But my goodness, when anything comes in conflict with God's word, we're like, okay, well, that's wrong, obviously. This is right. So we say, this is what we're going to do. We respond, and we get to work. And as we look around, as we look around in our personal lives, in our church lives, in this city, in this region, we see that there is a lot of work to do. There's much to build. Imagine Southern Illinois, a hundred years from now, just a hundred years from now. Let me just be gut level honest with you right now. There's a lot of people in here. We we got some kids in here. Um, I know there's a lot of people that are already grown and your kids are grown and all of that, and there's singles in here, and there's people who don't have children in here. So across the board, please hear what I'm saying. What if just this room, in 100 years from now, commits to just simply obeying God in our life and recognizing that that's what God has called us to do? Just I'm going to obey, I'm going to obey God. I'm going to prioritize His priorities, and I'm going to judge the world by the Word. I'm not going to judge the Word by the world. Okay, so I'm not going to look at the world to get my culture and ideas and then come to the Bible and say, boy, the the Bible's kind of weird. I'm going to look at the Bible, I'm going to study the Bible, and then I'm going to look at the world and say, no, actually the world is really weird and crazy. I'm just going to go with God. And if we 
Continue to build here. It's already here. You guys have experienced, experienced this. Many of you have. Continue to build amazing households. Continue to obey God in the workplace. Um, if we raise children and grandchildren in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord, and if we have more than 1.5 children each, if God gives us that, think about what this region could look like in 100 years. Is it going to look, and let's just imagine that God blesses the fruit of our hands, and we're putting our hand to the plow. Certainly those who don't know God, and like this secularism is just eating itself. I mean, cancel culture just cancels everybody until there's like, you turn on the TV, there's nobody there. You know, there's just, everybody's canceled everybody. Sorry, we're all racist, homophobic bigots, so like we just, we're not even going to be on the air anymore. We're too ashamed to be on TV. Um. That Christians are over here with a different community, a biblical community, obeying God, telling people about Jesus, thriving, happy, and this world that's just looking like it's looking is, is looking and like there's a different culture here. There's something different. Okay. Is it all that crazy to say that in a hundred years, through your legacy in your life, that there's not more Christians, that there's more Christians, not less Christians? And if there's more Christians obeying God, what does that mean in the world? That means that there's more godliness in society than there is less. Now, I'm not trying to push you on eschatology here. I'm just telling you what happens when small pockets of communities of people throughout this world and throughout this globe take Christianity seriously. I'm going to obey God in every area of my life. I'm going to do the work that God has prepared in advance for me to walk in. And I'm going to trust that my efforts are not in vain. That the work of my hands are I'm just, God's just like, well, doesn't matter. I don't care what you're doing. No, I'm going to trust that God's going to come through. God's going to bless the work. God's going to continue to bring people to Christ. And guys, as we look back in the history of the world, we see the ebb and flow. We see it in times it looks like the devil is kicking the people of God in the teeth. But you know what ends up happening through that? Revival. China right now. They're trying to stomp out Christianity. You know what's happening? It's like the dandelion by Indy Wilson. You stomp on a dandelion, the next thing you know, it's not three days that I have to mow. It's, it's like half a day because there's billions of dandelions everywhere. And you step on it and you think you're going to kill it. The seeds spread and it's just like, how am I going to stop this? And friends, Christianity is still growing in some of the most hostile environments in the world. Can we not expect it here? I don't want you to fold into pessimism. I don't want you to think that your efforts are polishing brass on a sinking ship. I want to expect that as we live obedient to Jesus, thankful for his favor that's upon our lives, that we're going to see more and more people come to Christ. And if that happens, and if we raise generations in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord, my friends, Carbondale in 100 years from now, Southern Illinois in 100 years from now, churches will be fuller than they are now. I believe that. I'm not asking you to, like I said, I'm just saying you think about the effect and the efforts of your hands. You think about the godly people in your life. Maybe it's a godly grandfather, godly grandmother, and you look at the legacy of their life, and you see from that one, God working in that one, how many people know Jesus because of the work of God through that one. 
And friends, you're that one for somebody. What could God do? I'm expectant. I'm excited. I'm going to pick up my brick, and I'm going to put it in that wall, and then I'm going to go, and I'm going to pick up another brick, and I'm going to put it in that wall, and I'm going to keep building, and I'm going to keep building. And you know what? By the end of my life, I want to look and say, my gosh, look what God has done. Look what God has done. It, it felt meager. It didn't come with prestige. It didn't come with fan mail. It didn't come with everybody like, oh, look at how amazing this is. I was just picking up one brick at a time. And friends, that's what I'm asking us all to do. Obey God today. The will of God is, a, is found in the obedience of the moment. Like, well, what's God's will for my life? Sanctification. This is God's will for you, your sanctification. Obey today and watch God work. One of the reasons we are where we are in society today is because many, many of the saints that have walked before us have thought Satan and the world is more powerful than Jesus. And have succumbed to the idea that we're polishing brass on a sinking ship. And if we do that, and we let that be pessimistic in our life, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it will not go well for us. We'll start being quiet when we should speak. We'll stop picking up bricks. Or we'll pick them up slower. And we'll just think, eh, what good is this doing? What good is this doing? It's all, it's all breaking down. It's all going to fall apart anyways. Why am I even obeying? No, no. God blesses the fruit of our hands. He does. So the people of God said, let us arise and build. And if Christians will commit to this, I'm just expecting. I don't know when Christ is going to return. It could be tomorrow. I hope it is. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. But it could be a thousand years from now. It could be two thousand years from now. We could be in the early church stage right now. Or it could be tomorrow. In light of not knowing, what are we going to do about it? We're going to work hard for his glory. We're going to tell people about Jesus. We're going to expect and pray, God, Jesus, come. Come today, but I'm going to work for your glory today. And I'm not willing. I am not willing to sit and do nothing while I see people perishing around me. I will fight for my family. I will fight for my children. I will fight for my grandchildren. I will fight for my great-grandchildren. I'll fight for my neighbors. I will fight for this city. I will build for your glory. And friends, that's what we need to do. So we don't fold, we build. And here comes that statist, satanic sand ballot again. Who doesn't like when individuals pick up a brick and do what God's called them to do. He's a naysayer, he's a hater, he's a statist, he's one who worships the wrong king. Look at verse 19. When Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite, official, and Geshem, the Arab, said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. The statist Sanballat is the one who worships the wrong king. He doesn't even know he's wrong about the king. He, we saw, enter in the story, these three guys were the naysayers. They were the haters. Last week, as Nehemiah was moving in town, 
and they're back again. The work has started, and they don't like it. As the people of God are doing the work of God, there are people who don't like it, and they jeer, and they ridicule, and they mock. And if the people of God wanted Sanballat, Tobiah, or Geshem to be impressed with them, they would have quit the work. Well, we're being offensive to these three. You know, they're right. They don't know. I guess they don't believe. They believe these letters are forged. I don't, you know, I don't want to offend them unnecessarily. I, we want to be nice to them. So if, if, we're, if we're offending them, you know, the 11th commandment in Christianity is thou shalt be nice to everyone all the time and never hurt anyone's feelings. They didn't care. They didn't care about the opposition. It didn't bother them. And friends, I'm telling you, right now, let me see what time it is. Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, okay. Right now, people are terrified for the world to be offended at them. They're just terrified. Oh, please don't be upset with me. Please like me. Please. Even in the church, pastors, elite, big pastors. Oh, please like me, USA Today. Please, please invite me into your club. Please. I, I'm, I'm not mean like those other Christians. I'm not mean like those crazy weirdo Trump voters. I'm not mean like the conservative right, those people who want to abolish abortion. I'm not mean like that. Please like me. Please like me. What did they do? It didn't matter that Sandballot, it didn't matter that his buddies hated them. Notice they were mocking and they were, their mockery was rooted in their loyalty to the king. What is this thing you're doing, rebelling against the king? And notice the response of Nehemiah and the boys. They didn't even say, actually, here's the paperwork, here's the proof, look, we're official. They didn't even say any of that. They didn't argue with them what they do. Hey, guys, you can come at me all you want. God's going to give us success. We're going to build the wall. Whatever. Just do your thing. We're going to build the wall. That's what we're doing. We're going to go build the wall. We're going to do what God has called us to do. And by the way, Sanballat, by the way, Tobiah, by the way, Geshem, you will have no portion here. No portion whatsoever. God will give us success. God is with His people. Even through the slaughter of His people, God advances His purposes. You can't even stop God's work by killing His people. They will not stop God from doing His work. Okay, so there's two things. We can have hope or despair. Let's start with hope. Go to despair. And I want to call you into hope today. Okay? No matter your eschatology... Pessimism about the work of your hand and the work of the church is never acceptable. Like Nehemiah and his crew, we know the favor of God is with us and will follow us all the days of our lives. We know the real king, the king of kings. We will do the good work. We will plan. We will build. We will repent where we need to repent. We're not going to check the cultural moment and try to win the approval of the world. We're going to grow roots where we are, where God has us, we're going to fight, we're going to build, we're going to laugh. And as one podcast network says, we're going to fight, laugh, feast. We're going to enjoy the blessings of God. As for me and my house, not only are we going to serve the Lord, we're going to enjoy doing it. And I want you to as well. Or we can be in despair. Sam Ballot and the boys, if they knew who they were opposing, they would be the ones in despair. Those who oppose the work of God will have no portion. 
If you look at the epicenter of the work of God, just, just where do we go to find the epicenter? It's not creation, although creation is so glorious. It is the very cross of Christ that all of history and all the future revolves around. Life is found, power is found, forgiveness is found in the execution and the death of Jesus Christ. Life by way of death. Jesus rose from the dead. So that people can come out of spiritual death and experience eternal life. Jesus rose physically so that we would have eternal physical bodies. Those who oppose him will lose. They will not win. They will not win. And those who oppose him will experience the wrath of God. They might mock, they might jeer, they may hate the people of God. But if they refuse the one who took the wrath of God, they will experience it. And so friends... Brothers, the wrath of God has been taken for us. Okay, It's been taken from us because of what Christ has done. Yes, it seems like the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Does it not? We don't take our cues of existence from the news. We don't do theology by way of newspaper. We trust that as we walk in the good works that God has prepared for us to walk in, that we're going to see the work of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. It is so easy to be Debbie Downer everywhere we go right now. It is so easy to see the worst in every situation. God, turn our eyes to you, and I pray that there would just be hope, there would be joy. And if things are going to get worse and worse and worse... Help us to be more joyful and more joyful and more joyful and loving our families and, and continuing to tell people about Jesus, inviting him into this. Help us to keep loving one another. I pray that this community here, that exactly what Susan shared before, God, I pray that there be that everyone would experience that, just loving one another. They would experience your love through your people. I pray that more people would come and feel this is a family here. My goodness, they've been purchased by Jesus. They love each other. They're happy. If there's any areas today, and I know there are in all of us, that we need to change and repent, help us to see, inspect those walls. Help us, to, help us to develop a plan. Help us run to you, Jesus. Help us to know that we're forgiven. And then help us build. Help us to move forward. Help us not to stay stagnant. God, we thank you. It's going to be our joy to sing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.